Well, we're coming to the end of a major section of the Gospels. Our text today, Luke 19, is Jesus' last teaching before he enters Jerusalem during his Passion Week. And that even so, we, we still have a long way to go. About 30% of the Gospels is during this Passion Week, and nearly half the Gospel of John. So there's, there's still quite a ways to go. Thank you for your patience. By the way, Brett, next week, Lord willing, is going to start a series on the life of Paul, unless he's changed his plans in the last few days. So he's, he's kind of chuckling, so we'll see. But this is a good stopping point for, for me and for him to come and teach us what, what uh, Paul's life was like. It'll be a great blessing. But we are now in Luke 19, and we last time looked at the first 10 verses about the conversion of Zacchaeus, but now we have the parable of the ten minas, and that's verses 11 down to verse 28. As while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and then they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves, to whom he had given the money, be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be in authority over ten cities." The second came, saying, Your mina master has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. Another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down, and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank, and having come, I would have collected it with interest? Then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him, and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence." We have, first of all, in verse 11, the need for a parable. It says, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Now, Jesus is telling this parable, but where are, where is the audience and who is the audience? Well, it says here that it was while they were listening to these things, so you go back to the previous verses and you have Jesus uh, talking to Zacchaeus, we said last week, we're not sure exactly where this interaction is and the, end, the, the last part of the story of Zacchaeus. Is it when he comes down from the, the tree or is it on the way back to his home? Is it in his home? I think it's probably in his home. So this parable here, verse 11, may well be when Jesus is at table or at least at the home of Zacchaeus, although we, don't, we can't say for sure. And so the audience may be those who have come around to, to be with uh, Zacchaeus or at least listening to the to the talk around the table. We have other occasions in the Gospels where Jesus is at a meal, but there's not just like a small table. There could be lots of people around sort of listening in 
and that may be the case here. We just can't say. But it says here that they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And again, we don't know exactly who they are, but they have this idea about what the kingdom of God is. So, now why does Jesus tell the parable? It says here, it's because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. First of all, it was because he was near Jerusalem, and we've seen throughout the Gospel of Luke several times that Jesus has been determined to go to Jerusalem for quite a while. Even the previous chapter, Luke 18, says, He took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished, and then he will be mistreated and killed and rise again the third day. And then even after this parable, verse 28 says, after he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. So Jesus is near Jerusalem. He's been headed there for months now. But he also tells the parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And we'll talk more about the reason Jesus tells this parable, but I I want to focus once more in our series on the kingdom of God. We've talked about this many times before. At this point, the kingdom of God is on the mind of the disciples. Remember back in Matthew 20, we have uh, James and John and their mother coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, can we sit on your right and left hand? So that's in their mind. They want to reign with Christ, right next to Christ. Even going back a little further in Luke, turn back to Luke 17, verse 20. It says, Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So even the Pharisees were asking Jesus about the coming of the kingdom. So that's a little bit before this parable today, but even a little bit after this parable, uh, look at Acts chapter 1. This is also, of course, still a writing of, of Luke. But Acts chapter 1, verse 3, this is after Jesus has died, he's risen from the dead, and now it's some 40 days after his resurrection. So it says, verse 3, to these, uh, that is, to the, the apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So he's speaking for these 40 days. You, know, you might ask yourself, what is Jesus doing from his resurrection to the time he goes to heaven? Well, among other things, he is uh, presenting himself alive. It also says he's speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So again, Jesus has the kingdom of God theme in his speech is speaking to the disciples for these 40 days. Well, then verse 6 says, so when they had come together, that is the disciples, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? So all this talk about the kingdom from Jesus has him once again asking about the kingdom. Is it coming right then or when? And Jesus says, verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. He's saying right now is not the time for the kingdom to come in the way you're thinking about. There's there's this this time, verse 8, talks about the Holy Spirit, and you'll be witnesses and so forth. So that's, again, the kingdom is surrounding the, the thoughts and the, the, the talk of, of Jesus and the disciples for this last time of Jesus' ministry and even before that. So it's natural to have people thinking about the kingdom and supposing 
that the kingdom of God would come immediately. And so back to our text in Luke 19, I think there has been a buzz in the crowd traveling to Jerusalem for Passover. Remember, it's not just Jesus and the twelve, but it's Jesus and the twelve and others who are with them. Besides the crowds that are going up to Jerusalem for Passover, there would be thousands and thousands of people traveling from Galilee down across the Jordan and then up through Jericho to Jerusalem. And they're, they're all together and they're, they're many of them following Jesus, listening to Jesus, and they want to, to uh, see what's going to happen. They are thinking maybe the, this great rabbi and miracle worker Jesus, the son of David, will become king as the Passover approaches. And we'll see when we get to this passage about the triumphal entry, that enthusiasm when they're throwing down the, 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 the branches and they're singing Hosanna to the son of David, that didn't come out of nowhere. I think that is, has been building up over some time and then it bursts out in this scene maybe just a day after our, our parable today. And so the disciples, or whoever the they is in this verse, probably had in mind an earthly kingdom where the son of David would again sit on the throne in Jerusalem and they could be rid of the Romans. And what better time than Passover? Remember, Passover was the remembrance of coming out of the bondage of Egypt. If they're going to have the Roman yoke thrown off of them, it would be very fitting for that to happen at Passover. And so... When Jesus enters Jerusalem again, they're shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So we have here the idea of a king coming in God's name, the kingdom of God. And so these people are looking for an eminent earthly kingdom. But as we've seen many times before, one difficulty in talking about the kingdom of God is that its coming has phases. So you ask yourself, in Jesus' time, is the kingdom here? Depending on what you're asking, the answer may be that it's already come, or yes, it's here now, or it's not here yet. And to say it simply, as I said before, the kingdom of God is where the king is, King Jesus. And wherever he is, that's where the kingdom is. And so, in one sense, that the kingdom was already there when Jesus came, that is, it came with Jesus in Mark 1, it's John uh, has been taken into custody. It says Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand or has come near. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so when Jesus comes, he's preaching the gospel. The kingdom of God is is there. Luke eleven twenty, Jesus says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So when Jesus does these mighty miracles, casting out demons in particular, the kingdom of God is there. But it's also future. And so we see in Luke 22, a little bit later, uh, Jesus says, I shall never again eat the Passover until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So there's a time in the future that is the kingdom of God. Uh, Back to Luke 13, Jesus says, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being thrown out. So there's this fellowship meal in the kingdom of God that is still future to come. And then Luke chapter 1, going way back to the beginning of this gospel. Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 33. Then we have Gabriel, the angel, speaking to Mary. And it says, verse 32, He will be great, that is, her son will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And this Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And so this is the, the reign of Christ over the earth. 
he will have the throne of his father David, but it's not yet. It's not time in Luke 19. It's not even time in Acts 1. The time is in the future. And as we know now, this side of 2,000 years away, it's in the far future from their perspective. So the kingdom of God came when Jesus came. It's going to come in the future when he comes again. Uh, another difficulty in talking about the kingdom is that the kingdom is not, it is a place, but it's also a message. And the kingdom of God is synonymous with the gospel because the gospel is the way to get into the kingdom. The gospel is the door through which we enter that kingdom. So in Luke 4, Jesus says, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. And then Luke 8, 1 says that Jesus began going from city to city, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. And then he sends out the 12 later in Luke 9. He sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. So as they're preaching the gospel, they're also preaching the kingdom of God. So it's a place, it's also a message. But in Luke 19, Jesus knows he still has to suffer in Jerusalem and go back to his father for a time before the kingdom comes in all its fullness. So that's the the contrast between the kingdom is or can be. It's a broad uh, category of of place and message. When we see this term kingdom, so you have to ask yourself, when you see the kingdom of God mentioned in the scriptures, especially Luke here, what is Jesus referring to or whoever is talking about it, what are they referring to? What are they expecting? Is it the son of David coming and setting up on a throne, kicking out Caesar and, and all the rulers from, from Rome? Or is it something else that, that's happening, something more spiritual? Now, we've asked, why does he tell the parable? And we've seen a little bit of the, about that. We'll see more later. But let's move on to the parable itself. Verse 12 and 13, and we see the nobleman's charge. Uh, Jesus says, verse 12, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business with this until I get back. And this sounds similar to the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. And uh, Let's just look there for a moment and maybe keep your finger in Luke 19. We won't read this entire parable in Matthew 25, but you might remember the parable of the talents. And as I'll mention a couple of verses here in Matthew 25 and kind of remember what we've already said in Luke 19, what we've read already. So there's some similarities with Matthew 25 and that that's the parable of the talents and then the parable of the minas in Luke 19. So the master, in both cases, gives money to slaves while he's away. We have some slaves faithful to earn more money and some not, or one not. Um, We have similar words from the unfaithful slave about the master. In Matthew 25, it says, verse 24, the one who had received the one talent came and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And then Luke 19, 21, this unfaithful slave says, I was afraid of you. Because you are an exacting man, you take up what you did not sow, lay down and reap what you did not sow. So again, very similar uh, speech from this unfaithful slave. And there's even a similar lesson mentioned in both passages. Matthew 25, 29 says, For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. And then Luke 19, 26 says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. So those are some similarities. We could probably find others. But the differences, I think, are more striking. So, for example, Luke places 
his parable in Jericho before Jesus goes to Jerusalem, where Matthew puts it on the Mount of Olives when Jesus is already in Jerusalem before his crucifixion. In Matthew, we have a man going on a journey. In Luke, there's a nobleman going to receive a kingdom. In Matthew, the man gives differing amounts to three, his, his three slaves, ten, five, and one talent, according to his ability. But in Luke, there are ten slaves, and each slave gets one mina. Uh, in Luke, the nobleman gives explicit instructions to do business with the money, where there's no such instruction in, in Matthew. Uh, in Matthew, the, the master, when he commends his slaves, says in verse 21, as an example, Matthew 25, 21, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. And then uh, a similar th- uh, reward in verse 23 to the one who had two talents. But in Luke, what were the, the faithful slaves put in charge of? What were they given as, as reward for their faithfulness? In, in Luke 19, they were given cities. So instead of just giving more things, like Jesus says in Matthew 25, the, the faithful slaves in Luke are given cities to rule over. Um, in Matthew, the unfaithful slave buries his talent in the ground. In Luke, he takes his mina and puts it in a handkerchief. Um, one other thing is a, a talent is a lot more than one mina. We'll talk about that in, in a minute. And the endings are, are different, but they're both very kind of tough endings. So in Matthew 25, 30, we have... Jesus saying, throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness, and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, the unfaithful slave in Luke 19 doesn't have the same punishment, but there is this for those enemies, Luke 19.27, these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. So, difficult endings, but different. And the biggest difference, I think, in the structure of the parable is that in Luke 19, there's this framing part of the story where there's a nobleman going to receive a kingdom, and he's also opposed by the citizens of that country. And this theme of the rejected king is important in Luke's parable and even in Luke's gospel, but that does not appear in Luke 20, Matthew 25. So my view is that all these differences indicate to me that while very similar, they were spoken by Jesus on separate occasions, even though it was only a few days apart. Now back to the the money here. We have one talent um, in Matthew 25 is worth 60 minas, the, the money we see in Luke 19. So a talent is is much bigger. A mina is worth about 100 days wages. And a, a mina is worth 50 or 60 shekels, depending on how you might evaluate it. So take whatever your salary is and then divide it by about a third or a quarter. That's the kind of money we're talking about. It's, it's a lot of money. It could be a lot of money, um, but not a huge amount like a talent is. So those who were given 10 talents was given a, a whole lot of money, a lot more than just one mina. Now, you might remember this word mina from way back in Sunday school, years ago perhaps, or hopefully not too long since you read Daniel chapter 5. But I, I find this interesting. Maybe you don't. I mean, it's just me, but it's okay. If you look at Daniel chapter 5, this famous story of the handwriting on the wall, we have this uh, this big party uh, as Babylon is about to be overthrown. Um, Belteshazzar is, sorry, um, Belteshazzar, Belshazzar. Anyway, one of the Shazars is having a party. Uh, yeah, Belshazzar, verse 22. He's having a party, uh, even with the, the Persians on their doorstep. And 
this man Belshazzar is is being judged by God. And so we have this hand writing on the wall, and it, it basically frightens everyone. And Daniel's called in to understand, help understand it. And this is the inscription, verse 25 of Matthew, or Daniel chapter 5. This is the inscription written out, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Eupharsin. See that word, Mene. This is the interpretation of the message, verse 26. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. A tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. A perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. So this word mene in verse 25, 26, this is a a word that means uh, to number. And so it says here, verse 26, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. So they had this term mene, which means to number, which is given to this unit of of weight, this mina, so mene, mina, same word. Verse 27 talks about a tekel, and it sounds like the word shekel, doesn't it? Similar words, and this is from a word meaning to weigh. And so when you're going to name your currency, they they use the term to number, and also the term to weigh, because you weigh your currency in those days. And then the word perez, verse 28, it says your kingdom has been divided. And that's the, perez um, is from the word meaning to divide, and it can be used of a half shekel or a half mina. So you take some uh, some weight, and you divide it in half, and you said, this is the divided thing. You call it perez. And so God used this these terms for weights and also for, for currency of the time. Uh, you've been weighed, you've been numbered, and you've been divided. And, and so these words about money were used to talk about the judgment of Belshazzar and the and the Babylonians. So, remember, in ancient times, precious metals weren't traded as coins until the, about the time of Daniel, in fact, but they were traded by weight. So, if you, I don't carry much change anymore, but you pull out your, your quarter and it says it's worth a quarter dollar, right? Or whatever the, it's stamped on a coin. And these days, you didn't have the, the amount stamped on a coin. You knew what a coin was worth by how much it, how much it weighed. And so that's why it's important to have just scales in these days, is because you could, if you were messing around with your scales, you might have more or less gold, silver, whatever it was, and you would you would lose value. And even in Jesus' time, when the use of coins was widespread, you still had these weight measurements of precious metals like talents, which varied based on where you were, but could weigh seventy pounds or more. And so you're not going to carry a talent. Generally, you know, in your pocket, you couldn't do that, or even on your back, it'd be very difficult to carry a whole talent of gold or whatever it was. And then uh, a mina is one sixtieth of a talent, so it's a pound or more. But again, you wouldn't want to carry around a, a pound of silver or gold, uh, typically, with you. But having a shekel, which is one sixtieth of a mina, which is maybe a third of an ounce, is much easier to handle. An interesting thing is that the, the term for the British pound... You think, why, why is it called a pound? Because a pound is a weight, right? It's confusing. If a pound is a, is a weight or is it a, a, a kind of currency? Well, originally it referred to a weight of coins, so this is a pound of coins. And in fact, when you, if you have King James, you'll notice that the, the King James translates this Greek word, uh, mina, as pound. Now, back to Luke 19, after this diversion about coinage. I'm sure that Brett enjoyed that. He loves money, but not in that case. He loves coins. Uh, so be careful how you say that, right? 
Now, we're back in Luke 19, and we have here a nobleman, verse 12. A nobleman who's going to a distant country to receive a kingdom. Now, that sounds kind of strange to us, but a number of commentators link this kind of setting to a fairly recent historical event in Jesus' time concerning Archelaus, who was a son of Herod the Great. Now, you remember Herod the Great? He was the Herod at the birth of Jesus. And he had some sons that we don't need to get all the details right now, but one of his sons was named Archelaus. In fact, Archelaus is mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew. And humanly speaking, it's interesting that Archelaus was a primary reason Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Why is it that Jesus, who was the son of David, who was born in Bethlehem, didn't grow up in Bethlehem, but he was up far north in Galilee? Well, in Matthew 2, it says, after Jesus took Jesus and Mary to Egypt, uh, Jesus, or Joseph got up, took the child and his mother. This is after the death of, of Herod. He came to the land of Israel, but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Archelaus was well known as a, a, a bad guy. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called Nazarene. So, Joseph is coming back to Israel, headed towards Jerusalem area, but I don't want to live where Archelaus is, so I'm going to go north and settle in Nazareth. Now, Archelaus, uh, he ruled over parts of Palestine from about 4 B.C. to 6 A.D., so 9 or 10 years. And when his father, Herod the Great, died, um, because the Herods lived under the authority of Caesar and Rome, they couldn't just say, okay, well, king dies, his son becomes king, like, like ordinarily would. The the son could be willed this, but he still had to get approval from from Caesar to get this kingdom. So Archelaus, of course, wants to rule in his father's place. He has to go to Rome. Uh, remember who was Caesar at this time? Caesar Augustus was still, still there. Right after Julius Caesar, we have Caesar Augustus who was there a long time. And the, the Jewish historian Josephus says that there was a group of 50 Jews that also traveled to Rome to oppose the appointment of Archelaus as ruler due to his cruelty. So we have Archelaus going to Rome to try and get this kingdom of Palestine. But uh, a number of Jews go along as well, and they're going to speak to Caesar also and saying, we don't want this man to rule over, over us. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what the, the citizens are saying in Luke 19.14. Now Caesar did give Archelaus rule over a portion of his father's kingdom, but it wasn't the whole thing, and and this is important in these days. We, well, I think the titles are important in our day. But in this case, Archelaus, while his father was called king, Archelaus was given the term ethnarch, which is like a governor. So he wanted to be king of this whole region his dad had, Herod the Great. But instead, he comes back with a kingdom, but it's just a portion of the original kingdom, and he's not called a king. He's called uh, an ethnarch or a governor. So he gets less than he wanted, but more than he deserved. And this man, Archelaus was such an oppressive ruler, about 10 years later, another delegation complained to Caesar, and then Archelaus was exiled to what is France today. So being exiled to France, you can decide if that's a, a punishment or not. It's probably more of a punishment back in the day, 2,000 years ago, but that's what happened to him. So he didn't rule very long. And at that point, the, the Herods did not rule in the southern portion of, of Israel, and that's why years later we have Pontius Pilate, so while we have Herod Antipas, who's part of the Herods, ruling up north, and in the east, we have uh, Roman governors like Pilate ruling in the south in Jerusalem. 
a little bit more history. Uh, there are interesting connections, I think, between the Herods and Jericho. And remember, Jesus is in Jericho at the time. Herod the Great himself built a great winter palace near Jericho, and he died in Jericho. So there's some history with Herod in Jericho. And then his son Archelaus, we've just been talking about him, Josephus says this, Archelaus also magnificently rebuilt the royal palace that had been at Jericho, and he diverted half the water which, with which the nearby village of Nerea, about five miles from Jericho, what used to be watered. So he has this, this aqueduct. He drew up the water into the plain to water those palm trees which he had there planted. So he plants a whole grove of these date palm trees. He diverts water and aqueduct to, to fill this plain and to, to grow these trees. He also built a village nearby and put his name on it and called it Archelaus. So Archelaus had a number of these sort of building projects in and around Jericho. So as Jesus is telling the story that has echoes of Archelaus's history, he's actually in this place. And he doesn't mention Archelaus's name, but I'm sure Jesus' story brought back memories of this cruel Herod to some of his listeners. And they may have even been personally oppressed by Archelaus in their day. Imagine an older man listening to Jesus say, oh yeah, I remember a nobleman going to Rome to get a kingdom. Uh, that happened to us not too long ago, back when I was when I was young. In fact, Jesus may have told this parable in sight of the palace that Archelaus himself had built. So I think interesting historical background, connection between this parable and what happened in Jericho. Now, before we hear more about what this nobleman's going to do in this this parable, there is something of interruption, verse uh, 14. We have here a citizen's delegation. But his citizens, that is the citizens of this nobleman, hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And these are the citizens of his home country who want to block his appointment as a king. And again, I, I talked about the Archelaus story before. This was some 70, or sorry, 35 years before but in this parable, this, these citizens hating this nobleman, this is pointing to the Jews of Jesus' day. That's the analogy. So 35 years before, Jews went to, to Rome to protest the appointment of Archelaus to the kingship. In Jesus' day, the parable is referring to the Jews who are saying, we don't want this man to reign, reign over us. John 1.11 says of Christ, he came to his own, that is, the Jewish nation, and those who were his own did not receive him. And even in John 19, we'll see later, it says, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And Pilate said to the Jews, behold your king. And so they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So we even have a connection with Caesar here when the Jews in Archelaus' day appealed to Caesar. Well, now we have the, the Jews saying, the chief priests anyway, in Jesus' time saying, we have no king but Caesar. Jesus was presented as a king. He was rejected from the kingship by the citizens who hated him. Well, Jesus now in verse 15 down to verse 19 is going to return to the activities of the noblemen and slaves. And we have here the commendation for faithful stewardship. Verse 15 when he, that is a nobleman, returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. 
And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be an authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Your mina master has made five minas. He said to him also, You are to be over five cities. And so these slaves are held to account. The first two have somehow invested the money and gotten really great returns. Ten times and five times the original investment. I need to get these guys on my 401k. Uh, these are very wise uh, stewards of this money. And notice here that the rewards are in proportion to, but far exceeding, the faithfulness of the slaves. Uh, a mina, I mentioned before, is a say 100 days wages, a lot of money, but not a huge sum of money. And to get 10 cities because you were faithful with one mina, that, that, that's quite a, quite a reward. Imagine saying, for, for being faithful $10,000, you made $100,000, and now you get the whole area of Tacoma as a reward from, from the king. That would be something else. That would be quite a, quite a gift. But this mina is a small amount. It's a token to give the slaves an opportunity to show their faithfulness. It's a test of the nobleman to see if they're going to be worthy of these cities, of this rule. And they were faithful in a relatively little thing, and the king knows then that they'll be faithful with much more. Now, it's interesting as you look at the slaves and see how they respond, and notice their humility. The first appeared saying, verse 16, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. It's almost as if the multi had, money had multiplied by itself. You just, I don't know what happened. It just made ten minus more, made five minus more. And they're not saying, yes, I was so wise and, and intelligent and I invested in all these different things and I get the credit for what, what came out. It says, no, master, your mina has made ten minus more. So it's giving um, the honor to the king, to the nobleman, and keeping the, the focus off of the slave himself even though it was through the diligence of these wise slaves that they have gained this this extra money. So we have these stewards commended for their faithful stewardship. On the other hand, we have a condemnation for unfaithful stewardship. Verse 20, Another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. And then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. They said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. Verse 26, I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given, but from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Now it's interesting because we have these, how many slaves were there at the beginning? Ten. We have one and two, and now that we have the last one. The other seven to drop out of the story somewhere. But we come to the final one. Tom, do you have a question? Yes, I have a question about the cities. Oh, uh, sure.
Yeah, I don't know that we're going to be actual cities because I think of the logistics of that. If in this case we have a, a, a brand new king who has a few faithful slaves and he gives them some cities, but if we have presumably millions and millions of faithful Christians throughout history, and there aren't that many places on the earth to, I mean, we'll reign in some way. But if we sort of got ten cities, you know, get, get Paris and, and maybe nine surrounding suburbs. I don't know, share authority. I don't know how that's going to work, but it could be that way. But I don't take it necessarily as these faithful slaves who get cities are, are, are like our our reward any more than we're actually getting physical gold or silver to, to invest for God's sake. Even when we do in a sense, but you know what I mean. We have more responsibilities than just what we have in our pockets. So I think this is symbolic of some kind of rewards, whether it's a of, of sort of physical reward in, in terms of reigning over a city. I'm not willing to go quite that far, but it's not out of the realm of possibility anyway. But we might have to share the, share the reign a little bit. Maybe you can be mayor or governor of a region. We have, or I might be a deputy, deputy, deputy to the assistant mayor of, of some place. Yeah, that's it. But we have now this final slave who has not been faithful with his mina. And this slave was unwilling to risk what the master had entrusted to him, so he hid it away. He'd rather gain nothing than lose anything. But in doing so, he was actually disobedient to, and to the command to do business with the money until his master came back. Verse 13 says, do business with this till I come back. He wasn't told to just do what he wanted to with it. He was supposed to uh, be faithful in and making more money. I think the, the the master would have been happier if the slave had made an investment that went sour and just doing nothing with it. But as this master says, if the slave really thought this master was so tough, so cruel, the slave should have been all the more diligent to be faithful than he was. And even if he did next to nothing by putting the money in the bank, the money would have gained some interest. So there would have been some gain from this investment. Now, you see the phrase here, verse 23, speaks of money in the bank. Literally, that's money on the table. Now, they didn't have banks like we have banks today. You would go to the money lender, and you had some money, and you wanted to deposit it in, in the bank. You would put it on his table. And so that's what it means to put the money on the table. You put your money on the table so that the money lender can take that as a deposit for you. And we'll see this shortly in in the Gospels, when Jesus goes to the temple, and what does he do? He goes to the temple and sees all the money lenders, and what does he do to their, t- to their money? He overturns the tables. So they have the tables with their money on it, and Jesus comes and overturns it. That's how the money lenders do business. They put the money on the table. Now, one other uh, random fact I learned is that our word, English word bank, comes from a word related to bench, which is like the money lenders table. So you come and the money lenders put the money on the bench. You go to the bench and you'd exchange money with the money lender. And that's where we get our word bank from. And thankfully, it's a lot more uh, secure nowadays in some ways anyway. Back to this unfaithful slave. Instead of trying to do the bare minimum, all this slave did was wrap the money in a piece of cloth. And this word handkerchief here, that could be used even in our own day, could be used of a perspiration cloth. And a couple of commentators note that this slave should have used this kerchief to wipe the sweat from his brow as he worked hard to compound this money. Instead, he used this 
kerchief, this cloth, as part of a justification for his idleness. So instead of working hard and sweating to gain money, he he put this in, in, a, in, a, in a cloth and, and set it aside. Now, one thing you might ask yourself as you see this story, we often want to do this in parables, is who is it who's saved? Who's not saved? What, what is the spiritual state of the people in the parables? And it's not always clear. They have the parable of the, the sower, for example. We have different people and, and are the, the first three not saved and that the last one is saved, or some say that the first is not saved, but the second one or second and third are kind of saved, but they or they lose their salvation, that kind of thing. In this case, we ask ourselves, well, we, we kind of think in spiritual terms because of the commendation of the master that the first two slaves here in Luke 19 are saved. But what about this last last slave? Is, does he represent a true follower of Christ, just a maybe an unfaithful one or a weak one? Now, the commentators differ on this, but I think he's probably not in this context, and just for a few reasons. First of all, we have his lack of diligence for his master. He doesn't work hard at what he's given. In fact, he does nothing with what he's given. <clears throat> I think even more important, his lack of affection for his master. The lack of diligence, a lack of affection for his master. He's afraid of his master, and he accuses him of stealing. He's a he's an exacting man. He's a tough man. He he takes what he does not. Um, let's verse. Uh, Take what you not lay down, verse 21, and reap what you don't sow. He, he's, he's a, a grasping, hard man in the, in the mind of this slave. We also have the fact that we have a lack of commendation from his master. In fact, the master calls him worthless in verse 22. And then finally, the lack of reward from his master. The master doesn't give him a reward. In fact, he takes the money he has and gives it to somebody else. So I think that those are several reasons why, in the context of this parable, this unfaithful slave is referring to somebody who, in our view of things, would not be a saved person, a a true follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe somebody who attaches himself to Christ, but falls away. Then we have this parenthetical statement in verse 24 or 25, rather, it says, they, they said to him, after, after the, the master says, take the mina away from him, this unfaithful slave, give it to the one who has ten minas. They say, master, he has ten minas already. Some think that this is the bystanders inside the parable. Others think that this was those listening to the parable. So they're, they're listening to Jesus' parable, and they're, they're sort of complaining, well, Jesus, master here, they, he has ten minas already. It's not fair for this man with, to, who has ten minas already to get an extra one. Whether it's the people in the story or outside the story saying this, the fact is the king has the right to give the money to whoever he wants. Verse 26 says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given, but from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. And it sounds like Luke 8.18, even some chapters earlier in the same gospel, Jesus says, take care how you listen, for to whoever has, to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. So those who have a lot um, but are faithful with it are given more. Those who don't have much but are unfaithful with that little bit uh, bear the consequences. And it's a tough judgment, but it's just. And speaking of judgment, there are a few more characters in the story that need to be dealt with. And we have verse 27, this judgment for rebellion. It says, but these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. 
and this refers, I think, to the judgment of Israel not long after the time of Christ, some 40 years after he goes back to heaven. And Jesus knew the judgment to come, and we'll speak of it even later in this chapter. Look at verse 41 of Luke 19. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your barricade, when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. That is, when Jesus came, there was a judgment from God upon them for that lack of reception of Jesus as the king. And so that echoes what happened in, in this parable, Luke 19.27. Now we have, now, at the end of this parable, verse 28, Jesus, after he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Knowing what was before him, Jesus continued on his journey to Jerusalem, even going on ahead. He wasn't dragging his feet at the end of the caravan. He was on ahead. He was walking ahead of everybody. He was uh, eager to get up to, to the, the, the faith that God, the Father, had, had planned for him to do what he was called to do. And he did this out of his love for the Father and his love for us. And as Hebrews 12, 2 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, as we asked before, and we're kind of running along here, why does Jesus, again, tell this parable here? It says at the beginning, Because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And by telling this parable, he's saying to his listeners, you are focused on an earthly kingdom, but don't be so concerned about when the kingdom will come. Be concerned about being faithful until the king returns. We will be held accountable for our faithfulness and be rewarded for it. If you look at Matthew 24, we don't have time now, but Jesus says, blessed is the slave who's found doing the work of his master when his master returns. And it's hard to say exactly what these rewards will consist of, as we mentioned before, but somehow we will be rewarded with some kind of responsibilities in heaven. Well, let's just look at a few lessons from this passage. First of all, number one, we have a Lord over us. Our time, resources, and all we have belongs to him. And God has not left us on this earth to be idle. He has work for us to do. So we must be, second, faithful in the work. And what is this work specifically? Well, we could probably talk a lot about things like faithfulness to live and proclaim the gospel. We have the duty to be faithful, to pursue righteousness, and to pursue fellowship with God and his people. Second um, Corinthians nine, sorry, 5, 9 and 10 says, We have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for the deeds in his body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So we want to be pleasing to God. That's a duty we have as believers. And then First Peter 4.10 says, As each one has received a special gift, that is a gift of the Spirit for us, a spiritual gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So God has given us manifold grace, grace in many kinds of grace, and we are to be good stewards of that grace. A third, we are to be humble in this work. So faithful in this work, humble in the work. And as the slave says here, your minute has made ten more minutes, or five more minutes, 
And so when we see fruit from our labors, we give all glory to God. In Luke 17, uh, Jesus says, When you have done all the things which are commanded, you say, We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. And Paul himself had this attitude, 1 Corinthians 15.10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored more than all of them, that is, all the other apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So Paul was humble in his work. It was God who was doing the work in us. Uh, fourth, we are to take heart in the work. Take heart in the work. Be encouraged in the work. John Calvin said this, When it is said that the master of the house, after his return, called the servants to account, this ought to impart courage to the good when they understand that they did not lose their pains. That is, there's a lot of effort to invest this money, to work hard for this money. And you might think, this is a thankless task. I'm getting nothing out of this. I'm getting no appreciation from my 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 church, my family, my friends. Nobody's noticing the work I'm doing for God's sake. Well, God notices and God rewards. And so there are, are I'm sure, men who have ministries of 10,000 people in the pews every Sunday who are uh, seem to be omnipresent and um, praise to the skies. And there could be a, a faithful man who does one thing every day to, to encourage somebody else to be faithful in the gospel, to be faithful to follow Christ. And who will be the one who is rewarded with the ten cities? Uh, God knows. God knows our faithfulness, knows our hearts, and knows our, our faithfulness. Um, that, again, quoting Paul from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. God knows how we work for him and God rewards. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this parable, for what it teaches us, even though it has a, a great warning. We would not be those who rebel against the king. We want to be those who love the king, who serve the king, and are faithful to be stewards of what the king has given to us. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be diligent. Help us to be humble and and to be courageous in this work. May we be found faithful in our day to do what we do until you come back. We pray that you hasten that time. In Jesus' name, amen.